0: let
1: Main man, main man, main man. Main man, main man. All the people that were working for main man were unusual.
0: We were loud, ugly Americans basically.
1: Main man. An interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 53 in our series exploring the history of Mainman, which was the management rights company renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. The Mainman philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists' full creative freedom. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. But Lou New York. David was London. And Lou had that personality that it's not a it doesn't really exist in New York anymore but it did then. And it had to do with drugs, it had to do with speed. The drug was speed. All these people especially around the factory, they took speed. They were very fast talking, witty, quick with the put down, vicious, very very vicious. And Lou was very that. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed. Amanda Thea, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithfull and David Bowie.
1: There was a whole scene in London and we just kind of lived that life. It was the 70s, we wanted nothing to do with the 60s and we were determined that we were the beginning of the 21st century, you know. We want to wipe out everything that had happened before.
0: Fifty years ago, Bowie released Starman, which became the first follow-up hit to Space Oddity. The song was recorded during the final sessions for the Ziggy Stardust album, and in the decades since its release, it's become a much-loved classic. As we continue to explore all aspects of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, it's the ideal time to hear from Ken Scott, the man who produced the album, to get a feel for how David and his music evolved. To begin with, Ken explains how he first came to work with David
1: i started to work at trident studio i'd been working at abbey road studios and i left there and started to work at trident studios david had recorded the space oddity single which had been a success so mercury the record company wanted an album and i worked on that as an engineer with tony visconti producing and then came man who sold the world that they started off at another independent studio then came to trident and i did overdubs and mixed that with tony And then David quit for a while, and he came in to to produce a friend of his, and during I was put on the session, and during the course of that, one of the many tea breaks, I happened to voice to, to David that I wanted to move out of just engineering and move into production, and he said, I've just signed a new management deal that... Putting me in the studio, I was going to produce it myself, I don't know if I can, will you co-produce it with me? And that led to Hunky Dory. We had finished recording Hunky Dory, it had never even been released, and he tells me we're recording the next album, which was Ziggy, and we went in. Before Hunky Dory was even released, we'd started Ziggy. But David said to me that uh, I don't think you're going to like this one. It's much more rock and roll. It's going to be more. And I've never remembered if he said Iggy Pop or Velvet Underground. I didn't know of either of those bands anyway at that point, so it didn't mean anything to me. But uh, we just went in, and did it, and yeah, I finished up loving it. He was completely wrong for a change. I think Hunky Dory was more of a band project than you you would you would gain from from listening to it. Uh, it, it was the beginning of the, the coming together of, of all of the minds between myself, David, Mick Ronson, Woody and Trevor. We were, we were finding our feet, I guess, on Hunky Dory and it all came together for Ziggy. People look back and we remember things differently or we don't remember things at all. Now, at, in, at times I've spoken with Woody and Trevor and it's we didn't know the music till we came into the studio, and it was, we had to learn it and play it fast right, because David didn't like to do too many takes. But then you, you hear about, there were rehearsals, there were demos, all of these kind of things. So there, there are so many, de- and quite honestly, with, with David, you never know if it's David saying, it. you never quite know what it is, really was in the first place. Like from, from day one, it would be get the drum sound, then we'd start cutting tracks and it would be bass, drums, uh, either guitar, Maybe electric guitar and acoustic guitar or acoustic piano. Uh, We'd be going for more musicians than just the one-off. With David, it was never work. It was always pleasure. The whole recording situation was a pleasure, but with with David, with vocals, even more so, because it was always one take. That was it. I'd I'd get the level, then we'd go from beginning to end, and that would be it the the way it would always go for me whenever working on an album because you only had you had to make both sides sort of match time-wise because you could only have like 24 25 minutes a side on albums back then and you you wanted to to have the same time on each side really so as we're going through recording i would just be keeping track of times and just trying well these these four fit together with those four or five kind of thing time wise and always just messing around like that and throwing ideas around until finally we come up with something that that works and it was always time was more important than than the specific tracks there's the story uh of how i set up the drums for for Ziggy, which, after we'd done Hunky Dory, Woody happened to pass some comment. Now, we're still... This was the the end of the dead drum sound, which, when we were recording R- uh, Ringo, he was all, always a very dead drum sound with tea towels on his drums. This was continuing on. We did Hunky Dory, and Woody's drum set was very dead. After we'd done that, he happened to pass a comment to me that... uh you know, I really didn't like the drum sound on hunky dory. It sounds like I'm playing cornflakes boxes. Oh, okay. I didn't say any more. Then when it comes time for the rock and roll album, which by then started to think differently about drum sounds and they should be slightly liver, I said, don't worry, we'll get you a different drum sound for the next album. Anyway, typically we set up the drums before anyone arrives. As the, the road is there getting the drums together, I send the second engineer out to buy as many different size Cornflakes packets as he could find. And he comes back and we actually set up the drum kit just with Cornflakes packets. It's the sound we got at the time. I don't see it as being that different from, from anyone else's. I, I can't look at it the same way as, as someone else can. So much of what i've done has been uh so easy for me because it's the art it has to start in the studio and it it always did back then with with rono it it's there were a couple of times when we had to mess around, but normally he we were working so much as a team at that point we we knew almost what each other was going to do or say, and it he knew exactly What was needed, and would would set it up. I'm trying to think. It it might have been rock and roll suicide, or it might have been five years. There's there's one part that he's playing. It almost sounds like a horse neighing kind of thing. David and I were just about to say to him, "Okay, it's time to." And he said, "Okay, I'll go down and do the ending." At times, we were finishing off each other's sentences. it worked very well we were we were making the record we wanted to make i'm sure that one of the reasons that david came to me to co-produce he after doing a couple of albums with with tony tony was a bass player tony was the bass player in david's band and i don't think i think he controlled the music far more than David did, from what I saw. And I think David wanted more freedom to experiment a bit more. And so he came to someone that wasn't a musician within the band, that, that could keep control of a whole other side of things, so that David could do what he wanted to do and put his ideas forward, which he'd never been able to with, with David, and that, with Tony. And that's what started with Hunky Dory, and he took it that much further with, with Ziggy. One always has the ability to experiment more as success comes. With In the beginning, David was a no, nobody, so expenses were kind of kept down more, and we, we did them very quickly, the, the first couple. I think both hunky dory and ziggy were done and especially as both hunky dory and and ziggy there was no record deal at that point it was his management company were paying for them so we recorded each of them in two weeks and then maybe a week mixing and they were over and done with so with that kind of time span you have to know what you're going for up front and there's not much room for experimentation when Ziggy took off, and then ultimately Hunky Dory did well. That allowed us a little more freedom for Alain Insane and and pin-ups. Alain Insane was actually started in New York and finished in England, and so it took a lot longer, and with pin-ups that was all all recorded in uh, France and then mixed in England and... Once again, try with pin-ups, there was a lot of experimentation. Should, should we, as it was all covers, it was which one should we do the same as the originals, which one should we change, how should we change them, I just various things like that. So the experimentation got more as it went on. Back then, most artists were doing two albums a year, one every six months. And so we were basically working on the assumption that if... People were still talking about the album we'd done. In six months, when the next one came out, we'd done what we were supposed to do. We'd, we were successful. We never, in a million years, ever considered that we would be discussing the same product 30 to 40 years later.
0: Having worked with an extensive list of very talented acts, including The Beatles, Elton John, Pink Floyd and Jeff Beck, amongst others, Ken is the ideal person to highlight Mick Ronson's importance and influence to David.
1: Rono was without doubt, David's right-hand man. I don't know if David would have achieved the status that he did if Rono hadn't have been there either as a guitarist or as the arranger. Rono wasn't a trained arranger. He wasn't classically trained or anything like that, to the best of my knowledge. And so he would come up with arrangements that were completely unique for, for, for him, which obviously played to, to David... Perfectly, uh, just b- between David's stuff and the, the Lou Reed stuff, like the, the arrangement that he did f- f- uh, for Walk on the Wild Side was incredible, uh, just so simple, but it worked. And much the same with, with, with David's stuff, at times theatrical, at, at times very simple. And it, it just captured the essence of, of the music completely, but from complete strangers all of these violinists that had no idea what it was they were playing on. At the end of life on mars the way that that happens i give talks now where i actually play th- the end of that as it actually occurs because if you remember it's the sustaining strings and then the piano and drums come up again and you hear this phone ringing and it's the, it's this this whole thing that you've got rono cursing because this phone has suddenly gone off in the bathroom of trident studios and we had to fade it out and it, it's so funny when you hear the entire ending as it is recorded, and I also play this version that uh, someone was trying was doing a copy of Life on Mars, and they were doing it as close as they possibly could, and they do this ending, and they're saying completely the wrong things at the end, and it's just. It's really funny the way these things happen. But so much of it is just by chance. But we only found out the ending on Life on Mars because Rono had done the strings to, to sustain. We'd never actually let the tape run on and hear what happened. But then this, as the strings were sustaining at the end of Life on Mars, suddenly this piano comes back up and the drums and we hear all of this going up. We've got to keep it. We've got to keep it.
0: Ken worked very closely with Rono and David when they produced Lou Reed's Transformer album in 1972, which Ken engineered. So it's interesting to get his perspective on how David and Ronno approached that recording.
1: The only difference for me between David's projects and Lou Reed was the fact that it wasn't the Spiders from Mars that were playing. Uh, It was session musicians. Apart from that, working relationship was exactly the same. I think David knew Lou's songs beforehand and already had fairly preconceived ideas of what they were going to sound like before going in as he would do with with his own material so the the only thing was teaching the session musicians the songs and through their addition they were coming up with ideas such as the the line on walk on the wild side that was totally herbie flowers idea we put when we were initially running through it herbie was playing upright bass once we got the track Herbie came up and said, do you think I could put another bass on? What do you mean? Well, and then he put another, the same line, but played, I can't remember, I think it's a ninth or something, I can't remember what the interval is between it, and just suddenly it was, wow, no one's heard anything like that before, that's great, and of course now it's one of the, it's firmly established for people sampling and copying and all of that kind of thing.
0: After working with David on Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane and pin-ups across a three-year period, the final session that Ken produced with Bowie was for Diamond Dogs in 1973.
1: It was a weird time because the the last thing I recorded with David, it was uh, 1984 slash Dodo, which was a combination of two of the tracks that were finished up being separate tracks on Diamond Dogs. And he was already thinking more along the, I guess, the Thin White Duke type of idea. He kept on saying that he wanted it, I want it more like Barry White, more like Barry White, which was such a weird thing. It was one of the few mixes that he was actually at uh, that I did with him, for him. Uh, It was a mix a day and then probably go back at, uh, at the end and maybe mix the first one again. I just got into this this whole thing mix it there was no automated desks or anything like that back then it was all by hand and generally speaking if if there was a band involved they'd all be reaching over and as you went through they'd be twisting knobs to change things as you went through a well rehearsed it, it was a every mix was a performance back then and with David because no one was there except for me and maybe a second engineer How could we do all of the changes? So I got into this this whole way of mixing where I, I do like a very short section, get that right, edit it out, then do the next section, get that right, edit it to the first one, make sure that edit works... Which now listening on headphones, some of them didn't always work as well as I thought they had at the time, but uh, and gradually worked through it. So there, there was never any of the, well, let's go back here another take, see if it was better. There was only ever one master take because it was just all edited together from individual bits. Let's see, Hunky Dory was eight track with a little 16 track. That was round about the period of changing over to 16 track, and then uh, Ziggy was all 16. But uh, it it was, like, the, the drums were always just two tracks, just did it straight stereo, uh, all mixed together, so we knew what it was going to sound like. Uh, so we did, because it was 16-track, we didn't have that much room to play. We had to make decisions. One of the worst mixes I've ever done was on, uh, as far as I'm concerned, was on Aladdin Sane, which uh, was uh, Watch That Man. When mixing it, I felt that David's vocal should be an instrument it should it shouldn't be out front it should be on the same level. and I, I likened it to a, a stone stuff which quite often mixed vocals were really mixed back uh so i did it sent it uh, sent the complete album to to the management week or so later i hear back from it's all great ken but can you just mix watch that man again with the voice more forward fine did that sent it back to them they get back to me you know what ken You had it right in the first place. It's better with it mixed back. Fine. Following week, they've sent it to RCA. I hear from RCA. It's great, Ken, but can you do another mix of Watch That Man with more vocal? I said, I've already done it for the management company. No, do another one for us, will you? I do it. They get back to me. We preferred the original. You were right. But I hear it now, and I can't stand it with the vocal like that. But it's changing tastes. I loved it at the time. But that that shows how much I was doing it for me and it just finished up that other people liked it. Ziggy as an album is great. It holds together so well. There are some tracks that I prefer on Aladdin Sane, but as an album, it just doesn't hold together quite as well. David was listening to different records at that point. There was an American female singer called Annette Peacock slightly avant-garde not not compl- not as out there as Mike Garson could get on on some of his solos on on Alain's but David had started to get into that kind of music a little more which was why Garson fitted so well into it but just that changed everything slightly then very shortly after that we did the 1980 Floor Show which was the, the final thing really for Ziggy Fascinating recollections from engineer and producer Ken Scott,
0: who played a very important role in recording the rapid evolution of Bowie's work during the legendary Ziggy Stardust period. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Ziggy era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that were adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. I'm Des Shaw. And this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.